Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Dan Wilson, singer, songwriter, producer, you know him from Semisonic, you know from the songs he's written with Adele, Josh Groban, and Dixie Chicks, and so many more. Dan, good to have you. Thank you, Bob. It's good to be here. Okay, so what are you up to these days in the COVID era, Dan? Uh, making a lot of music and currently moving house, putting books into boxes and and getting ready to move. Okay, so you're moving from where to where? Uh, from Sherman Oaks to uh, Los Feliz, staying in L.A. Okay, and what's that about? Uh, you know, it's the usual thing. It's uh, school, kids, proximity to school, um, parenthood. You know, it's nice to be up in the hills, far from everything, but you're also very far from the kids' friends, that kind of thing. Okay, so your kids go to public school or private school? They... Um, private school and one is uh is graduated from high school and lives with us how many kids do you have just two you graduate from high school what's the plans there oh uh our older daughter is um cognitively disabled and the plan is for her to just hang with us for as uh, as long as we all shall live and she takes music classes and various things she's musically quite talented but essentially nonverbal, which is an interesting combination so what will happen when you and your wife pass away? Oh, Lord have mercy, Bob. <laughs> yes, this is the, um, the very, very slow white knuckles question of, of a parent with a disabled child. Yeah. We laugh with our 13-year-old telling her, you know, there could come a time when the 23-year-old lives with her. But we don't want to press the issue too, too hard. Well, I know I have another friend in the identical situation, and he was commenting to me that up to 21, there are all these services for these kids. But once they they reach 21, all of a sudden these governmental services fall away. 
Yeah. Has that been your experience? Well, yeah. And it also, um, in a way, uh, when things are medically stable, which they've been for a while for us, uh, the, the, you know, we've been able to figure out ways to make, make a life that's um, interesting and enriching for for the whole family, I guess you'd say, but you know, just on our own. So we haven't really needed specific services, but I do, I see the, the same thing. I know what you're talking about. Okay. So you're moving. Are you a pack rat or are you guy who has <laughs> no problem throwing things away? Um, I am a pack rat and my, um, I'm trying to apply a, 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 a metric or whatever, a, a rule of thumb to this move, which is, if it's a book that I brought to LA from Minneapolis 10 years ago and I still haven't read it, then out it goes. If it's a guitar pedal that I brought from Minneapolis to LA 10 years ago and I have never plugged it into my guitar, it's going on reverb.com. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to use the, um, you know, when you look in your closet, have you worn that shirt seriously, even to a wedding? No, it's like you got to get rid of it. So that's my little thing. Okay. So how many books do you think you'll move? <laughs> like 95% of them. <laughs> and how, how many books is that? I'm a big reader. So it's not a library full of books, but I have a lot of books. I, I read a lot of books. I don't know. I can't really. I have more books than anybody that I know. The reason I mentioned this is I moved about a year ago and I was confronted with the same problem. Oh. And... I have a lot of music. I kept all my vinyl. I never, you know, and I'm never going to get rid of my vinyl. And that's thousands of records. In terms of CDs, I've cleaned those out a few times, bought a few computers with the money I've gotten. Right. And uh, they were, you know, these promo CDs are worth nothing. Then now they're worth nothing again. But yeah. for a long time there, it was astounding. Um, but the books, it was interesting in terms of the physical books. I all I have the stuff I bought, and I also have the stuff that's sent to me. Right. And there was so much stuff that I didn't really know what to do. And I have another friend who says, well, you know, once I've read a book, what should I do with it? You know, I'm not going to read it again. I'm not a rereader, hmm. but I certainly come from the background where you want to walk into someone's house and see all the books. So I started to throw things out. And then I said, I'm going to keep all the music books mm -hmm. because a lot of those were only printed once and I may have the only copy extant, but I literally tossed everything else. And I'd like to tell you, I miss them, but I don't. The other thing is I've been reading on a Kindle for about 10 years and mm. I'm really into it. You know, there's some physical books that are sent to me and I see this, the future. And I have a friend, my close friend from college, he was in the book business. And I go to his house and every room is full of books. And he goes, yeah, my house is a monument to dead tree media. Yeah. And I said, you know, that's enough for me, but I'm a pack rat too. But how much are you saving stuff for legacy reasons? Well, I don't, you mean my, like, what do you mean by legacy? Tell me that. Well, you know, I was talking to Pete Wentz, a fallout boy. Yeah. You know, he literally has kept everything because at some point he's going to die and it's going to be his museum. Mm. Bill, Wy Bill Wyman did the same thing. He kept one of everything, although he recently sold a lot. Yeah. Are you keeping it thinking, well, you know, I'm Dan Wilson. I've had some success. <laughs> the other thing, you know, the other big thing now, which you may or may not be aware of, is you can donate your archive to uh, colleges frequently for seven figures. Whoa. Well, um... 
Bob, I love all this talk. I, 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 my, my relationship to all the books is, is actually pretty selfish at the moment. I'm not thinking about my legacy. I'm just thinking I might want to, I might read that book again. If it's poetry, I'm going to keep it all. I have a lot of poetry books and I do kind of like, I, I do like to just randomly pick out a book from the shelf and read it, or just be reminded of something and read it and read some poems. And, but I, I probably, I don't think I will read most of the novels that I, that I've read again. I probably won't. I don't know. It's, it's a funny question. If you lend a novel to somebody, do you insist to come back? No, I, I'm actually, uh, I don't mind. I, when I lend a book to somebody, unless we make a pact at that moment, I really don't expect it's going to come back. I'm fine. I'm cool. Okay. And if you had to pick two books uh, out of your reading experience of 50-odd years, wow, what would you recommend? Or what are the most important to you? I can't really recommend. Like, probably the books like um, Labyrinths by Jorge Luis Borges is probably the most important book just because it was um, when I read it, I had an idea what books were. And then this was one of those books that just completely changes your whole idea of what a work of art could be. I just love that book, Labyrinths. And then from my childhood, I don't know, would I keep, I I was once had this conversation with Matt Hales, a, a friend of mine who's a great producer. And he, um, he said, what's the most influential book in your life? And I said, it's probably Lord of the Rings. And he said, no, 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 it's Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a close call. So I'd probably keep Borges and Winnie the Pooh or Lord of the Rings. I can't tell. Okay, let's jump back. So what are you working on career-wise, work-wise, mm. music-wise these yeah. days? Yeah, Um Well, the the big surprise of the of 2020, other than everything going to crazy hell in a handbasket, uh, is that um, Semisonic put out, my band Semisonic put out a, a an EP, and the first single has been sort of floating in the teens on the AAA chart, which is not what we expected. It's on the radio, and people are hearing it. And sadly... Um, we had to cancel a whole bunch of shows. We had a very fun, um, maybe uh, a lazy man's touring year planned. And uh, we're going to go to UK and play a bunch of shows there. And we're going to try to hit as much of the US as possible. That's going to go, maybe, maybe that'll have to happen next year. But even the fact that we've been doing these ridiculous and great, um, you know, live from home performances, and the fact that we've been talking to each other a lot and and I'm still writing new songs for Semisonic. That's like, that's been a big focus. And I'd still write songs with folks like. Let's stop, stop with Semisonic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Semisonic essentially broke up or faded away <laughs> and you put out albums independently. What made you decide to work with Semisonic again? I had, the guys and I have been in touch, like, you know, close friends all this time. There's never been like a fight or a falling out or a problem. John and Jacob and I are pals. Okay, just one second. Yeah. Was it an actual agreement to break up 20 years ago or suddenly you just didn't get back together to make new music? I, at that time, our older daughter Coco was kind of emerging into, like she was getting, she had been very medical as a, as a, as a you know, our, we, our family was very medicalized, you know, in 
from 97 to 2001. And, and yet I was also on tour a ton. Uh, and I found that conflict between having a little baby on a ventilator, um, you know, an undersized preemie toddler on a ventilator at home while I was in Birmingham or, you know, Bristol doing shows, uh, I found it painful and eventually it just seemed insupportable that for me to be gone so much. So I, I, and the guys and I had been on the road for like eight years at that point. And it's not like we were mad at each other, but there weren't a lot of things in, you know, you couldn't really put on our plate something that, that we hadn't already done a bunch of like there, there was, it didn't really seem like there were going to be like brand new. I'm not, you know, just being bigger, like doing the same thing and being bigger. That was the only thing that was sort of like on the menu. And that wasn't enough of a draw. And I, and I kind of felt I needed to be a, a dad, more, more of a dad in this, you know, difficult situation. So we just kind of slowed down. And I, I know the guys didn't exactly know what was happening. Jacob started writing his book. He wrote this wonderful book called So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star during those, those next like four years or so. Um, but then as time passed, you know, John, a bass player from Semisonic, would say to me, like, we'd get together on Christmas time in Minneapolis, or we'd have a benefit show that we would do, and he'd go, have you written any new songs? Let's, let's come on, let's just do this. It could be great. And I had to confess, I, I hadn't written any good Semisonic-sounding songs during those. I tried, but it, I didn't have any. It was either a bad song that sounded like my band, or a really good song that didn't sound like my band, and I I hadn't been able to figure out how to do that to to make a to to make a great song that sounded like Semisonic again. I needed to have a stroke of luck to get to that point. Okay, first point: you've continued making a living from music. Yeah. The other two members of the band, what have they been doing for the past twenty years essentially? Well, John in Minneapolis um, has become kind of uh, first of all he has a he has a jazz band called the New Standards. And they they do they play pop songs and then they shred. It's a trio, uh, vibes, piano, and upright bass. And they have become kind of a, a icon of Minneapolis St. Paul music. Um, and every year they put on a a big Christmas show with with all the artists that they know, all the all the performers that they know, and it's kind of become sort of a it's like a destination for families and, and, and fans every year. So John kind of slowly turned into an impresario. He puts on gigs. He, uh, you know, he's produced a few records, not a lot. And then uh, the new standards, you know, go to Beijing and play shows or Alaska. Or they do fun stuff like that. Jacob has been working on his second book for quite some time. He has a punk rock band in New York that plays loud and very fast. So whenever he gets together with us, it's like our tempos are the, just the laziest thing. And he's got absolutely no trouble. You know what I mean? It's just like semisonic is all this medium speed, you know, lope. And uh, Jacob's, you know, much more accustomed to 160 beats per minute these days. Okay, but does Jacob uh, have a side gig? Because being in a drummer in a punk band doesn't tend to pay that well. <laughs> You're going to have to get Jacob on to ask him how he pays the bills. But uh, I think the book helps. The first book. 
Okay. And it was a great book. I certainly read it. Yeah. So you had problems writing semi-sonic songs. What yeah. changed? Uh, I, it really was a specific event. I, I had a really fun, inspiring meeting with one of my favorite singers, Liam Gallagher. We got together um, at my place one late morning uh, and sat out on my, my deck in the backyard and he just basically was a rock star, uh, and we laughed. And I got to ask him some of my Oasis fan questions, and not all, but not all. And we, I played him a few songs that I'd written. Uh, and he said, "Well, I'm going back to you know England tomorrow. Send me anything you have that you think I could do, and we could and we could discuss that." And I was like, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So over the next like week and a half. I had a bunch of ideas and I wrote like five songs. I thinking these are pretty good Liam Gallagher songs. I like these songs. These are cool. So I sent them to him and his management and they got back to me right away and said, "Oh my goodness, it's the album's done." <laughs> you know, <laughs> my, my mistake <laughs> or whatever. I don't know if they hated them or if they literally were like, "Oh geez, Dan wrote a bunch of songs." So, but when I listened to them again, they sounded, they weren't Liam Gallagher songs. They were just me. They were my songs. And a couple of them sounded like semi-sonic songs. And even though we didn't use them on the EP, they were like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know, maybe just meeting, I had met Liam before at festivals, at gigs backstage and stuff, but maybe seeing him again reminded me of that time in a way that other things didn't. And I, I had told John and Jake, we're not going to update we're not going to upgrade our sound. We're not going to try to sound like, you know, Post Malone does semi-sonic. We're, we, I don't need that personally because I do pop music, so I don't need to be updated. And I just said to the guys, let's not, let's just do what we sound like and have it be fine. So we needed, I needed to get back in that mood. Okay, so you were back in the mood, but needless <laughs> say, in the 20 years since semi-sonic was on the boards, the music uh, business has changed completely. Really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It used to be the big threshold was getting a label deal. Yeah. And then if you had one of the label deals, they would give you a shot in the marketplace, right. assuming they believed your music was okay. If not, right. they'd either drop you or get you some publicity. Yeah. So what was it like saying, okay, I'm going to enter back into this sphere 20 years later? Well, I mean, I think one... um One thing that you have to do now is piece together the whole thing, like piece together, like as though you, all the departments that used to be a label are now separate people working out of their, you know, home offices or, or offices or whatever, or, you know, as as subsidiaries of things, we ended up getting distribution and some um, uh, services from the orchard. We did a bunch of things ourselves. We have... Um, you know, uh, publicists that have worked for, you know, worked for me and they ended up also working for the Semisonic record. We, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have these relationships, but we, we have, you have to sort of almost like it's all a la carte. You just find this and that and this and that. And, and then you have your own temporary label structure or whatever you want to call it. And you mentioned the record, the track is on AAA, AAA radio, how did it get there? Because nothing happens by accident anymore. Well, um, I think there was, I think 
between the orchard and Jim Grant, my manager, I think they and everybody who was involved in like the team, I think um you know, Megaforce the label, uh I think they I think they all thought that that was a reasonable hope that we could get some airplay on this kind of station. Like I knew I knew we could get played on if we got lucky, we could get played on XRT in Chicago and we could get played on KXPN in Philadelphia and we could get played, um, you know, here at, on KCSN, uh, in, you know, in LA. I mean, I had this, that's the kind of station I had in my mind and those are all what's called AAA stations. So that made sense to me if Megaforce and Jim and everybody else were going to decide where to go. And I honestly, though, I thought if... KCMP in St. Paul played it a bunch of times, a non-embarrassing number of times in my hometown. And then it was over. I was I probably would have been like, yeah, high fives. Let's do that again. So I didn't really think of it as likely to be played all around the country like it is. Okay, because, you know, there's a lot of people making music, however good, that gets no airplay at all. Right. Now, are you the type of guy who's more of an artist or are you also a student of the game? If I were to talk about charts distribution, is that you have expertise in that area? No, no, I'm I'm not. Uh, I'm not that guy. I, I had um um. I there was a period when I tried to sort of, to some degree, out of a sense of obligation or oldest son duty or something, I tried to learn more about the business and try to be very involved in like or very up to speed on how semisonic was doing for example or what my what the songs i've co-written are you know doing but i i i kind of learned pretty early that if i did that i would just write songs about money you know and like record sales and distribution it becomes it's like whatever you focus on in your life is what you end up writing songs about and those are very very boring topics and i really noticed when I was really plugged into the business side, how much my songs would suck. So I, I kind of unplugged. Okay. When, before COVID, when, uh, Semisonic was going to play live dates, how many live dates was this? Well, we would, I mean, <laughs> we were going to play, I would say the grandiose plan was something like 30 shows, I think. That's, you know, I know that's not a lot, but it's, it's, it okay, was. Okay. But yeah, but that's the balance. My question yeah. being that you've put out this track and the track is more successful than you anticipated. We yeah. all know that the old game doesn't exist. Nothing right. crosses over from AAA to top 40, et right. cetera. Right. So they are not inherently lucrative. They're not inherently large in terms of social cultural impact. However, when one has success, it does light a flame or turn the gas up a little inside. So now that you've had this success, to what degree do you say, wow, I'm turned on. I want to go further down this path. Well, I'm, we put out the EP. We, we made the EP and we were done with it at the end of last year. Maybe the last mastering was done in December or January, maybe. And the, it was always a plan to just do this EP and then get started and make another EP. <clears throat> so I, I didn't, I think we probably would have done it whether we'd gotten 
any airplay at all. I just think it feels like the, the time, you know, for it. And we've done enough shows where, you know, where we haven't forgotten how to be a band, but we were all pretty excited about like kind of hitting it a little harder and, and also spending that time together. I, there is a big part of this is just that we're, we cherish each other. It's kind of weird to say, but we just, it's because we love each other. We want to do this. Okay, let's flip it over. So you have this personal situation. You put the band on hiatus. How do you become a songwriter for hire? Oh, man. Well, I I had the picture in my mind because of Carol King, who was my kind of one of my childhood heroes. And she, her name was on all these records, and she had hits of her own. So I always thought that was one thing that someone who was really cool could do. So I had that picture in my mind, and the on the last Semisonic album, I ended up writing a song by Crazy Good Luck with Carol for the Semisonic album. So I watched what she did with me. That was interesting. And uh, well, well, let's slow down a little bit, because Carol okay. does not write the lyrics so what was interesting about the experience? What did you learn about the experience? Well, I was, first of all, I was super nervous to be with Carol. I was, we sort of imagined that we could be writing a, um, a semi-sonic song. And we both were thinking that. But, we, but there wasn't, it wasn't like, this isn't a label's idea of what to do when you're desperate. You know, even like at that time, Carol wasn't a, a, a you know, a, the matrix or a top 40, you know, uh, one of the villains of top 40 production. She, she was an icon, but we thought we'd write a, a semi-sonic song. And yet I had this idea almost like that. I was, that I, I didn't know, know if I was supposed to be me or be her during the session. This is a very early for me, like co-write. And she uh, she kind of guided me into uh, a a zone where we were both having ideas that reminded each other of the other one somehow. Like I I would I at one point I played a piano chord and I was like, uh, uh, oh you know what about this chord? I'll, sh I'll show you what the chord I played. Hold on, I played this chord. Uh, I played that chord and I was like, how about that? And she laughed. I said, yeah. I said, four over five. You like that chord, Carol? And she laughed and, and she said, yeah, but it's, it's not called four over five. It's called C over K. And I was like, <laughs> okay, you are a badass. Like, I already loved her for that, you know. But then at another point, she, she had an idea that was almost like tweaking closing time. Like she was sort of, it was not satire, but it was just her like, taking the piss about closing time and uh but we ended up using it because it was awesome and i i really learned from that i learned from this kind of like we found a kind of a part of the playground where where both of us were comfortable with the with the ideas we were having and it was truly a, a collaboration and that was like a almost like a master class you know that was like an early moment when I really thought, oh, I could totally do this. This is great. Because my hero knows, he just showed me partly how to do it. Okay. So then what happened after that? Then um, 
Oh, I, I wrote I wrote a song that got I wrote a song with Beck Runga, who's a New Zealander, and she uh, and I wrote a song that was in this movie called American Pie, and that was pretty great. And then Semisonic. Whoa, 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 whoa. You were you were working with Semisonic. How'd you even get hooked up with this New Zealand oh, artist? Uh, uh, Beck was signed to the same publishing company that uh, Semisonic was with, Warner Chapel. And Kenny McPherson, who's been my publisher ever since, said, hey, you know, I have an artist who's like having a little trouble um, getting inspired and kind of stuck, and you want to try to do a session with her. So we ended up, we ended up, we got together and wrote a song, and it's not like I knew how to do that, like to help someone not be stuck, but we wrote a real nice song. Okay, so keep going. Okay, so... Then, then Semisonic. Um, then I kind of like somewhat cleared the decks, and we st- stopped touring. And I was putting out the word to lots of people, like in the Twin Cities, and uh, you know where I was from, and, and and where I lived, and you know locals and other people. I'd like to write songs with people. I want to, I want to do collaborations, and um, I just put the word out. I want to write with people, and um, the Minneapolis people didn't want to do it. They were all very uncomfortable. They thought their weird songwriting method was unsuitable to show other people, which was already interesting for me to to hear that because it, it almost becomes a, a universal. Like people are like, I can't write a song with someone else because then I'd have to show them the stupid way that I write songs, and that that was kind of an insight for me, even even to be refused on those grounds. And then a um, friend of mine who was an A&R guy for Trip Shakespeare, my previous band, Steve Robowski, uh, contacted me and said, I have an artist, Rachel Yamagata. I think you would really get along great with her. She's a, she's a touring you know, rock musician, and she's going to make a, a, a contemplative piano record or uh, and, and and you guys need to write a song together so i wrote a song with rachel we had a great we had a great time she played it for jason mraz and then a few months later jason was at my house in minneapolis and we were writing songs and two of those songs we worked on ended up on mr a to z his the album that he was working on and did, did it did it did it it just like it just happened like that like Pearson, person to person to person. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Now, there are a lot of musicians. I know people, musicians who are dicks in real life, but they're unbelievable networkers in music. They know how to relate to musicians. Are you more the isolated type or are you heavily networked to begin with? And do you have any anxiety about reaching out to people? Oh, I'm, <sighs> man. Okay. Like, I'm. I have a real hard time asking anyone for a favor of any kind. I have a very Norwegian American sh shyness and and uh, like bashfulness, I guess, about about getting ahead. And I I'm not a great networker in that sense of like once i have someone in my network i don't go all right now i'm going to call bob and ask him for this you know I, I but i do but i do keep in touch with people and i do and i cold call people but i cold call people because i'm like i love what you do let's hang out like i like a couple of my happiest musical relationships are people that i just got in touch with randomly Can some, somebody find me this person's email or phone number i'm just going to contact them but once they're in my network, I just, I, it's not like they're there to be exploited. I just, I just love musicians. So I don't know. I'm, do you, you know, what, do you stay in touch with people on a regular basis? You say, oh, yeah. I haven't heard from that person in a month. Yeah. You're I do. Staying really, okay. I mean, okay. So you do, yeah. Go I'm on. not a month. I'm, I'm like six months. <laughs> I've never okay. been a month, but I've always been like, oh, I haven't, yeah, I haven't heard from them for a while or just like, how you doing? Or I heard, I heard some news about you or whatever. I've, I've always been that kind of person. And I think uh, there was a time, there was a sort of a turning point in my life when I was doing a lot of painting and I was selling a lot of paintings. And I was like, okay, I know I'm not cool enough to be New York gallery artist, but I could probably figure out how. So I was definitely thinking in those terms, like what, what do I need to do to be able to just be a, a painter? 
and do that as as my life because I really love art and I loved making art and I and I was I was thinking to you know how do I crack that code and still be myself and I was sort of thinking maybe a little bit like if if I have to transform myself too much I'm not going to do it but I was definitely thinking like what is, what is it about my work that's just not cool I don't know so and then in music it was an interesting time because I was also like I the only two choices were to like try to adapt and but that's never going to work or just be yourself and see what happens so I couldn't really decide between art and music on on the basis of well this one is obviously working better than that one I was I, I was still puzzled what it meant to be an artist but once I had done music and art at the same time for like two years it was really obvious that being a painter is like super lonely it's just really lonely work. And you can't have people come in and bug you. You gotta be alone. Like they could come in for a little while, but you know, in your studio, if, you, if you're in a building, but you, you mainly have to keep them out. And I realized I'm just not that guy. I just, I'm not built for that. Okay. But when you write for Semisonic, you write the songs alone. Uh, what's the difference between doing that and inherently starting as a collaboration? Well, I wrote um, 100% of You're Not Alone from the new Semisonic EP, but I wrote um, Basement Tapes, which is very autobiographical. I wrote that with Mike Viola and Jenny Owen Youngs, two friends of mine who we've written a whole bunch of songs together over time. And they they just played the part of the co-writer in that session. If we go back to the trip Shakespeare and initial semi-sonic yeah. era, yeah. were you mostly writing the songs alone? Yeah. Most like uh trip Shakespeare. I was the finisher for, for my brother, Matt's unfinished songs. So he would finish, he would do most like half the songs all alone and maybe a quarter of them I would finish. And some small proportion we would just write together as a collaboration. But when semi-sonic came along, I just knew what I wanted and I knew what it needed to sound like. And I knew songwriting wise, like what had to happen and also what I had to access. And so I ended up writing those songs alone because I just knew what was necessary. And I wanted to, a lot of times I was writing for our shows. Like we don't have anything for them. It's like, there's always this dead period in the middle of the set. You know, what is wrong with those three songs that we keep we switching out all these songs into that middle section of the set and it's always boring. Why? What can I do? And I would write songs for that purpose or I'd write a song to close the show. You know, very practical. When you were not touring, uh, did you miss it? Yeah, I did. I did. I missed it. When, when uh, You know, there's something about being on tour is like really, really tiring. You got to get, you get to a certain point of like what a friend of mine calls maximum tiredness. And then you just like cruise. You're just that tired all the time, but you're also irresponsible and taken care of and your food shows up in front of your face and you can party until someone comes through with a scowling face and says, you know, Hey, come on, we got to go back to the hotel. You need to get sleep. You, you, you got to get up early. Like that level of like carefree irresponsibility is amazing as an adult. (laughs) 
Okay, uh, back in the day, did you uh, take advantage of some of the so-called perks of being on the road? Uh, well, in some ways, but I, I was I got married before any of this happened, really. Like I like I I had I, I my uh, girlfriend and I, who my, now my wife, you know, we got together when we were in nineteen and twenty or something like that, and we've been very. Uh, deeply intertwined ever since. So I didn't have like a phase of like, uh, you know, sexual wildlife, you know, abandon. And I, I, I would have, the road didn't offer me any more drugs than my friends at home did. So I don't, I don't think I did more drugs than I would have done if I had just been a dude staying in Minneapolis all the time. I would have done it either way. I think this is going to sound super dorky, but like when I look at pictures of me and John and Jacob on tour, it's like, it's us in front of the Eiffel Tower and it's us on, you know, Bondi Beach and it's us, uh, you know, like slowly walking through um, Westminster Abbey, you know, stuff that's like, we really, really wanted to see the world and, 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 uh, you know, um, it's almost like tourism was for us that was the drugs. We we could we could have just been on the bar circuit and done all the drugs we wanted. So but. Okay, let's go back. You work with Mr. Aid on Mr. A to Z. What is your first breakthrough success as a songwriter, collaborator, uh writer for hire? Wow. Okay, let's see. I mean, I think it's not ready to make nice with the Dixie Chicks. I think uh I was working on an album that eventually was called Free Life with Rick Rubin. He signed me to his label, American. And we were working on that, and he played a bunch of the songs that we were working on for the Dixie Chicks when he was producing them. And they they got excited about a couple of the songs, but then also they got excited about the possibility of writing us writing together. So eventually Rick, Rick put us together in a, in a, in a room after a lot of false starts. It was like a lot of reasons why things got canceled, but yeah, that was the first one. Okay. Let's go back uh, to one of my personal favorites. How did you end up working with Gabe Dixon? Ooh, Gabe, a friend of mine, uh, who worked at MCA as an international promo guy and had traveled with Semisonic around Europe. Um, uh, introduced me to Gabe and basically they um, were, it was before anything like really had uh, happened commercially for my, for my co-writing, but Gabe and I had a very magical um couple of weekends in Minneapolis uh, writing songs. And we wrote um, Five More Hours and we wrote uh, All Will Be Well. And we wrote, we wrote five or six songs that I, that I think of as like, you know, possibly like lifetime type songs for, for an artist together. We, we really clicked. It was, and that was before the chicks, before I met Rick. It was early on. Oh, 
Okay, well, uh, I'm a huge fan of that initial work and then the live rendition of that work. And Gabe has never been able to equal that since, yeah. uh, artistically or commercially. And he's sort of a hired hand piano player. Yeah. Uh, that demonstrated to me that you had a huge effect. Why have you not worked with him again? Well, we did. We wrote another song called uh, My Favorite that came out on a record of his like 10 years ago. But I think. Like, I think sometimes. First of all, when Gabe and I wrote All Will Be Well, he never. He didn't think it was all that. He was, you know, he was. He didn't think it was special. And everyone else thought it was special. Um, except for him. So it's possible that he and I just didn't make, I think, I think we made things that were sort of, I was supposed to make the difference. And I think we made things that were closer to home for him than, you know, than farther away. And I think sometimes when people are on the co-write train, they're trying to find someone that's going to take them farther from home so they can be different and then finally get some kind of recognition because they're, Maybe they're not doing the right thing. Maybe just being themselves isn't enough, you know? I think somehow that's possibly in the back of a lot of people's minds. And labels are that way, too. Like, if I, if you write, if I write a song with somebody and it's, it's the quintessential them song, labels are like, yeah, 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 yeah. But we need something that's got that spark of difference to, you know, really... Like, there's a mental block against just being essentially, truly yourself. Uh, can you give us any examples where you took someone further away out of their comfort zone and it worked? Well, let's see. I mean, it's got to be uncomfortable to work. Uh, Adele kind of jokes that I would, you know, make her weep when we wrote together. I wasn't mean. I was never on unkind or impolite but like it just was we had some very raw conversations about difficult things that was not easy that was you know that was outside the comfort zone but the songs are are they feel very very authentically adele you know and even the those chick songs to write um, not ready to make nice. I I kind of had to convince them that they, that they needed a song like that, and that they they felt like they didn't want to beat a dead horse and be talking about the same thing again and again. And I was like, no, you need we need at least one song where you just go head on into it, like just walk through the fire in one song, so obviously that no one will mistake what you're talking about. That's got to happen. How did you get hooked up with Adele to begin with? Same thing, Rick Rubin. That was like, that was an incredible uh, bit of matchmaking. He kept saying, you got to do this. And like, and, and yeah, yeah, I kept getting postponed and canceled. And he would call up and say, I really think, I really think you need to write a song with this, with Adele. She's so amazing. And like, he just, you know, and he did the same to her until we finally like hooked it up. Okay. So tell me about that experience where it was raw. Was that something conscious? What did you inject into that songwriting session that resulted in that? Uh, I don't think I injected anything. I, I think she, I think she wanted to talk about this raw emotion. She wanted to talk about, she wanted to make a breakup song that sort of 
reflected what she, the story she was telling about her feelings. I, I don't think I, um, I don't know. I think I'm a good listener. I don't think I did anything like, I, like when we were the next day we got together, we, the first day we wrote two thirds of someone like you and sounded pretty great the second verse was terrible there was a bridge that was kind of tangled up in the second verse you know there were problems the vocal was not as cool as we probably i would have wanted it but the second day when we got together i said to her so do you want to keep working on that thing we started yesterday or do you want to work on a new song and (laughs) she was like Oh my God, of course we have to finish that song from yesterday. Like, I was very happy to be like, well, I guess let's work on something else. And she, and she was like, no, 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 we got to finish that song. So it wasn't like I was a Spengali guiding her to success. I was actually being very loosey goosey about, you know, what to do. Okay. So she reveals herself and you're listening. Yeah. What was the next step in writing that song? Well, I mean, it's almost more like, yeah, it's almost like she had a she had a bass riff. She has this very interesting one finger way of playing the bass. She doesn't. I don't think she's ever. Maybe she performs it once in a while, but she has this interesting way of playing the bass, and she does that on on the low strings of a guitar too. So she had this kind of bass or low string guitar riff, and a couple of lines of um, of someone like you. No title, I don't think, or no chorus, but. She had that beginning and that that low bassy riff on the guitar, and at one point she was like, "I don't know, this is just you want. Why don't you play it while I sing?" So I played that same riff on the guitar while she sang, and she and she was like, "I don't know, I don't know. It's a, maybe it would be more inspiring if you played it on the piano." So I played it on the piano, and we immediately just like, "Okay, that's exactly how the song needs to." Like it was really clear. Now we're onto it. Like now we, you know, and once you feel like you're onto something, it becomes very easy to like be, get become very dogged and intense about it. And so I think that once we heard that similar pattern on the piano that she had been playing on the guitar, it we could imagine the the record, and then it then it gets easier. And did you have any idea that the record would be as successful as it was? Oh no, no. I mean we. Played it for my wife when I came home. We were staying in L.A., uh, uh, in Los Feliz, uh, for a month. And I was doing, I was writing with people and doing stuff. And I came home and played it for my wife. And she said, oh, that's a beautiful song. And then um, we never listened to that, you know, didn't listen to it again. And uh, then like a week later, I got a, a text from the head of her label, Columbia, Saying, you know, basically like, oh my God, Dan, this is a copyright, you know? It's like, okay, great. Uh, wow. Okay, let's go back really way to the beginning. Okay. So you're from, from Minneapolis yeah. area. Did you literally, were you born there and grew up there? Yes. I was born um, in uh, when, when my parents were moving from the East Coast where my dad was going to medical school. My parents, my mom moved back early 
to Minnesota. She had grown up in Appleton, a very, very small town in the western part of Minnesota. My dad grew up in South Minneapolis, and his folks were also from the western kind of small town prairie um, area of Minnesota. So she, my mom went back early, to, and, and I was born before my dad finished medical school. We grew up in, um, you know, medical student housing, my brother and I, and then later my sister, and um, eventually ended up in a, in a near suburb of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park. Okay, how many? So there are three kids in the family. How yep. does a hierarchy? How does a I'm, hierarchy I'm the go? oldest. My brother is second, and my sister third. Okay. Now, traditionally, all the hopes and dreams and pressure are on the oldest kid. Did you feel that? <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. Uh, I was like when I was little. Um, I I I I I I tested as very, very, very bright. Like I tested off the charts. And my mom used to joke that every year they would, you know, we'd get some, somebody would come in with a school and they'd assess me or whatever. And every year I was slightly closer to normal. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but there, there was still a sense, like I, I, I was really bored in school, like many bright kids. I was bored in school and I distracted people and I, made remarks and I talked while the teacher was trying to talk. And I was very, I was not only entitled, but I would make the teacher laugh while they were trying to teach. And, and eventually like I, there was certain kind of compensatory things that the schools tried with me. Like in elementary school, I had this, I had this, I went for part of the afternoon to another teacher that taught me higher level stuff. And it was like having a tutor for being smart. And also during that time, I developed a lot of nervous tics. Like I just, so maybe, maybe I was feeling the pressure to be sort of a bright kid or like to, to be a successful, you know, fourth grader or whatever. And my parents got very alarmed that I started develop, developing all these physical tics. And um, they, they phased out some of that special treatment. So I just got more and more normal as time went on. But I think there was always a sense that my parents had were like of that age where they were both kind of artsy, but their the step their generation had to take was to be, was to do something like measurably successful. So they, you know, my dad became a doctor because that was a a logical next step for the family to have a kid who was a doctor. And then I came along, and my siblings and I came along. Basically, in the whatever makes you happy, you can do whatever you like. We still love you no matter if you have a profession or not. That was our next step. Okay. Prior to the billionaire techies in Wall Street, you know, doctors made a good living. Yeah. Was your father, did he support your desires and whims? Or it was like, go, if you want that amp, go out and make the money yourself. He, uh, my parents were, um, like they didn't have any toys. They, they, that we had a, we built my, 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 my grandfather on one side was a carpenter. My grandfather on the other side um, had done plumbing for a while when he was younger. My mom's brother was an electrician and my dad was willing to carry heavy things. And between the four of those dudes, they built this small house in Northern Minnesota. 
And that was the family's toy. That was like the one, like what we had on that, on the lake that, that we, that the, that the house was next to, we had a canoe and a, you know, a 14 foot uh, rowboat with an upward motor. And that was our toys. And, and my parents had this kind of very prairie Norwegian anti um, flash, you know, uh, anti toy kind of attitude. And so I kind of grew up with that too, but they, they, they supported us in the sense like when, when I was in like eighth grade and I was doing a paper out in the morning, early mornings, and I was slinging ice cream at a ice cream shop in the, in the evenings, my dad offered to half pay for a guitar and an amplifier for me if I saved up. So I saved up and I bought a guitar and an amp in eighth grade. And, um, okay. So you were going to public school. Yeah. And what kind of kid were you? You remember the group, an outsider, a nerd, someone, what, what were you? I was, um, I was a smart kid. Most of my close friends were really smart, nerdy kids. I also made really, really wicked caricatures of people. Uh, I had a, I could get a likeness with pen and ink. And so I would make caricatures of the teachers and they would confiscate them, but they secretly liked them. And I, I, I would make caricatures of, of mean kids and kind of court disaster by, you know, like making caricatures of bullies. And, and uh, I, so I was thought of as a smart kid, but I had this sort of weird superpower of being artistic. So I was, I was given a pass to some degree. Okay. What inspired you to buy that guitar in amp? I, uh, my brother and I, when I was summer before eighth grade, I think my, no, maybe before seventh, my parents gave my brother, Matt and I one super cheap acoustic guitar to own together. And we, we co-owned this acoustic guitar for years and we loved the Beatles. And the summer we got that guitar, we got some books, Mel Bay or whatever those books are that show you the chord shapes. And we learned a bunch of chords and then we started to try to write songs of our own. And I, all my songs from that time, it's really interesting. My songs were really, I was really trying to sound like George Harrison. Like I was trying, like I wasn't trying to sound like McCartney. Maybe because I didn't know enough chords, it's possible. But my brother um, had a little more unique musical style from the get-go. Uh, but we were both like trading back and forth. We'd have the guitar for an afternoon and we'd each try to write a song the next day. Okay, but you got the guitar, the electric guitar and the amp. Then was the goal to go out and play in bands, and did you do that? I, the goal was to go out and play in bands. I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't uh, good at the guitar, but I was taking lessons, and I kind of, um, I quickly abandoned, I sold that guitar, and I got um, a bass because I had noted that um, bands always needed bass players. So I got, weirdly, I also at the time was listening to Weather Report. So this is probably 77. Or I was probably 16 or 17 now. 
when I switched from guitar to bass. And I got a fretless bass so I could be like Jaco Pastorius. So I learned how to play fretless bass. And then I played this odd choice of instrument in, in whatever rock bands my brother was in, essentially. He was a drummer. Okay. Now you end up going to Harvard. How does that happen? Um, my grades were great. I was, um, I used to go around to the magazine uh, offices in Minneapolis and show them my cartoons. And I, I would try to see if they would buy my cartoons. And there were a couple of magazines that were kind of youth oriented magazines um, around Minneapolis that ended up starting to use the drawings that I made. And so, so when I applied to Harvard, I had good grades and, and not insanely good grades, but really, really good grades. And, and then also I, I just killed the SATs. I killed them. Oh, okay. So what was your experience at Harvard? I, I loved it. I really did. I loved, um, I studied stuff because I was interested. Like I took history of science classes because I, I wanted to know what, this is going to sound so lofty, but I wanted to know what knowledge is and how humanity has gathered it and organized it and revered it or, or despised it, whatever the response. I wanted to know about the meta of scientific knowledge. So I took science, uh, history of science classes. I took some, I took a couple music classes, but I didn't like them. I played in bands. Uh, I had a couple bands that played that basically took me out into Massachusetts on the weekends. So I didn't party at Harvard in the, on the weekends. I, I drove out with the band to, to clubs in various places, Peabody and Hingham and, you know, on the, I know on, all on those cape. places. My mother's from Peabody. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, you end up as a fine arts major. How does that happen? Uh, I just think that was the most interesting thing to me. And there was a brief period or maybe a two-year period where I started thinking, well, maybe I ought to become an architect. Maybe that's what an artistic young person ends up doing when they want to have a proper job. And so I got some jobs. I got some jobs with architects' offices. I studied for a year or so at Harvard the you know, history of architecture. And I took, I took one applied architecture class and I was like, Oh, I could do this. And my parents, um, the summer between my junior and senior year, my parents kind of gathered me up and said, you know what? We really want to know, are you trying to become an architect because it's a profession that would make us happier? Are you trying to be a professional when you really just want to be an artist? And I was like, maybe, Maybe architecture feels like a, pro a professionalized way to be an artist. And, and they, they said, well, don't do that for us because we don't need you to be a professional. You don't have to have a, you don't need to go get a graduate degree or do anything for us. If you want to be an artist, you need to start now and just do it. I wish I had your parents. But, uh, <laughs> Amazing, okay, right? At what, right? At what point does the music thing become serious? I got um I went out to I went out to San Francisco with my girlfriend and we we went um Jacob Slichter whom uh the drummer in Semisonic uh was our friend in college and he went out there with us and lived with me and and so the three of us were out there like trying to make our way um Jake and I wrote songs together we were thinking about being in being in bands i got a i got a 
a job at a graphic design company. I, I made signage for for uh, law lawsuits. And, oh, okay, you're now graduated from. College. Yeah, we're out of college. We're out in San Francisco, and um, my brother in Minneapolis is is putting together this band, Trip Shakespeare, and they made a record. They're a trio, and they made a record with bass, drums, guitar on the left speaker, and guitar on the right speaker. And but they're only a trio, and my brother and in this band had stopped playing the drums, and he was singing and playing guitar. So he he played both guitars on the record, but they needed a guitar player. And he asked me when I was in San Francisco, would I consider moving back to Minneapolis and playing the the right speaker guitar uh, for this band, Trip Shakespeare? And I thought about it. Um, my girlfriend was heading to New York. We decided, we decided to live separately, and I went to Minneapolis uh, to be in this band with my brother, Matt. And what were you doing for money? <sighs> what were we doing for money? Like in, in San Francisco, I was, I was doing graphic design. In coming back to Minneapolis, I lived in a big house with lots of other people in a dangerous neighborhood. And... My aunt had, um, my great aunt had died and left, left me a couple thousand dollars around then. It goes a long way when you're uh, 22. <laughs> Nothing to spend it on. It wasn't like I was getting any fancy dinners or, yeah. So I just basically had rent and food. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. So how do you end up getting a deal with A&M with Crip Shakespeare? Crip Shakespeare, my brother was really, really smart about the, the, the hustle of music. He did a lot of things. Like he, he made a zine that was devoted to the band, but basically had a whole bunch of different articles about different things related to Trip Shakespeare in this zine. And for a while, he just um, stapled the zine to uh, telephone poles around the city. And then eventually it got to the point where he would also, they would also, like fans would take them at shows and stuff. But at first it was literally just a zine that appeared on telephone poles. And my brother was, I don't know, sort of in charge of like having a, of being driven and having the idea of having a band that did well. When I joined the band, I had a very functional role. I was playing the second guitar and singing harmonies and, and I got a, a digital piano and I played piano on some songs. But my brother was in charge of us being successful. Okay, you get a deal with A&M Records, and it doesn't ultimately work out. Why does the band break up, or what happens there? It was just really frustrating. The, 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 uh, the label signed us out of enthusiasm. They came to the shows, and they saw how much people loved the band and how hilarious my brother's raps were and how um, improvisational and crazy we were on the musical side and then you know it's the the a very familiar thing of how do you capture that on a recording and we never did crack that code you know who knows why but we never did figure out how to make records that sounded the way our spontaneous sometimes you know overblown shows felt and that we got very eventually that got really frustrating and i think that that's why the band stopped and i kept my i kept writing these songs that my brother matt would teasingly say that i was listening to the radio too much but in my mind i was like i want to i want to write things that get played on the radio i want to i want to write short concise things that that catch your ear in our you know, unforgettable, and I want to, I want that to be what I do. So, how do you form Semisonic? Jacob had been in um, Minneapolis for a while. He moved several years after I left San Francisco. He moved, and and you know, we continued our friendship, and we wrote songs on the side together, and made recordings. And then when when Trip Shakespeare kind of slowed down, and like that, uh, my brother wanted time away from the band and wanted to do something else. We asked John from Trip Shakespeare to play bass and start a trio, and we called it Pleasure. And we were like, we were not going to work too hard. We were, we were. Uh, I made a manifesto, which was, um, if a song isn't sounding good after an afternoon's effort, then I'm going to throw it away and write a new song. That was one. Uh, if we're having a bad time in rehearsal, we have to go down to the Loring Bar and have a drink. And that was two. 
And and I think the third I think there were three, and the third one was um, life is more important than music. Okay, having said all that, how do you end up with a deal with MCA? Uh, so, you know, we we had a bunch of true believers in in the music business. By that point, I, I Karen Glauber had been kind of indie rock or alternative rock um, expert at A&M for a little while while we were there, and we got to know her there. And then she went off to, I think she was working at Hits Magazine or something like that at that point. And I called her up and I said, I have some, I have some new songs with um, John and Jacob. I want to send them to you. And she was like, yes, yes, please send them. And, I, and she goes, are they good? And I said, I said, oh, yeah, I think they're really, really good. And she goes, do you want to start a bidding war? So I guess that was how it was done. Wow. And who was the manager at that point? Were we without manager? I think we were without a manager at that point. Okay, so you make a deal with MCA. Well, we made a deal with Electra. We made half of a record. They dropped us when Sylvia Roan came. Sylvia Roan said, we said, can we have these recordings? We'll go somewhere else. She said, no, no, <laughs> you can't have them. And uh, basically we begged and pleaded and then... Um, when in and her reason for not needing us anymore was that they are they the label already had third eye blind so they didn't need semisonic as well so so eventually though when we organized for mca to buy the record the half record from electra sylvia roan relented and took the money and then we finished the rest of the record on on mca so they got a free look at what it was going to be and you end up having a couple of big successes, Closing Time and Secret Smile. Yeah. Did you know those were going to be successful? Was there something else you thought would be successful before that? I, mm, similar, similar to the story I told you about someone like you, I, 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 I thought that Closing Time was a really great song to, to wrap up our shows. And we had already put out Great Divide, uh, the album before the the one that was made for two different labels and uh i had i had this i sort of had some gaps in the set list that i wanted to fill and closing time was one of them and and secret smile arrived in a dream i had a dream of i would say three quarters of the song and i quickly wrote it down and went back to sleep and then the next morning i i got up and played it i had written it down i played it i was like this is this is great wow i wonder what this is so i, I asked a lot of my friends what is this and they were like i never heard this before so that song was like not part of a master plan of any kind. And when we did, when we finished the record, I asked Nick Launay, our producer, what do you think the single is? I think it's closing time, I said. But what, I, I'm curious what you would say. And he goes, oh, no, 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 not closing time. That's, that's for the punters. You don't want that. Never You Mind is a, is a better song. You, you, closing time is, I don't, he didn't say it was too dumb, but essentially... He thought it was too lowbrow, which I didn't understand. I didn't get that. I, I thought it was great. And then our, and then our um, like I, I, I played the record to my wife and said, what do you think? Like, what do you think the single is? And she said, well, it's time to go big. And I said, okay, but you have to tell me what that means. She goes, well, if you're going to go big, that means you have, it has to be Secret Smile or a Closing Time. Then we sent it to MCA and they were like, we're sorry. We don't hear anything. There's no singles. If you want more money to record, we'll give you more money to record. But no, we don't hear it. It's not going to happen. So what happened? <laughs> so I was like, I called up my manager, Jim. We talked about this. Uh, that was, you know, they didn't, hear, they didn't hear a hit. They didn't hear a single. 
we weren't, but they'd give us more money to record. And Jim's like, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I, I love the idea of, I could write some more songs. That, that sounds cool. And he goes, okay, wait, wait, let's just think about this for a minute. And I'm like, okay. And he says, all right, they send you $50,000 to go record like four more songs or whatever it's going to be. So you have to write them. So you're writing, you know, four new songs, three new songs, four new songs. Can you guarantee me that those are going to be better than Singing in My Sleep, Closing Time, and Secret Smile? And I'm like, well, no, of course not. The, the three songs you just named are really great. How can I guarantee that these new songs are going to be better? And Jim's like, well, well. so imagine you're the person at the label who commissioned the new songs. Which ones are you going to choose to be the next Semisonic single? One of the songs that you commissioned? Or one of the songs that you rejected earlier? And I'm like, oh, I guess if I'm the label, I'm going to select one of the songs that I commissioned and not one of the ones that I refused earlier. And Jim's like, okay, right. So, but what if you don't beat the songs? What do you think they'll do? And I said, oh, they're still going to pick one of the new ones, even if I didn't beat the old songs. Jim's like, right. Do you want that? And I'm like, no. And he goes, Okay, then just don't answer your phone for a couple of weeks. So they called and called to get me to relent, and we ignored them and ignored them. And then eventually they got a new head of radio promo, a woman named Nancy Levin, and she's like, What are you doing with this? This closing time is a smash. What's what's up with this? Like and they're like, Oh no, we you know, we 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 rejected that already. She's like, Wait, give that to me. I'll make it huge. So So it all worked out. Okay. <laughs> it all worked out. You have, uh, oh, just back to Secret Smile. Yeah. Tell me about the dream and how much of the song came from the dream. Dream. The dream was the first verse. Nobody knows it, but you've got a secret smile. Uh, and the dream was, so use it and prove it. It was that. That was in the dream. Uh, it's now, now. And then it looped back. And I, it was no second verse. And there was no bridge. Okay, so the dream was the actual song, or the dream was a a woman who had a secret smile. No, the dream was the total the song. I, you should know by now. I'm not dreaming about girls. I'm dreaming about songs. <laughs> okay, speaking of uh, songs, you had a Vine series six seconds of basically information on songwriting. How did that come to be? Uh, that was that was that's kind of fun because that's that has continued in the in the most lovely way. My manager Jim had seen um, a Vine series by a, a screenwriter named um, Koppelman, uh, Brian Koppelman. Yes, I, I was spacing on his first name, Brian Koppelman, and he had this thing used where, to be in the music business, right? So he had this thing where he was going to do a hundred days of six second screenwriting tips. And I think he called it like writing a screenplay in six seconds or something like that. And my manager, um, Jim, linked me to this on Vine. He said, you got to look at these. So I looked at them and I was like, this is amazing. And Jim goes, you could do this in music. And I was like, yeah, you think so? And he said, just give it a try. So I was very resistant. And then I did like six or seven and I was like, oh, this is really fun. I really like this. So I, 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 Started doing that now. Actually, right now I'm in the midst of like okaying. I've made a deck of cards based on this, and it's uh, it's like each one has one of these six second comments on it, and it's called words and music in six seconds. But it's a deck of cards. 
And what is the plan with the cards? Um, to have people give it to their niece, who's a songwriter, as a gift. Okay. How come until your manager told me about this, I didn't know about it? Not the cards, but the six seconds. Oh, um, that will have to be a question for people who understand the uh, marketing and getting the word out. Well, the reason I mention this yeah. is most shit is crap. And I was unaware <laughs> of this and I checked on it and it was brilliant. You know, it's <laughs> funny you. you mentioned Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin is a Twitter feed. He used to be very intermittent, now much more active, which is essentially this. But he ran out of things. It's, you know, they don't always say it. yours is better than his. Uh, it's funny because, I, yeah, I've noticed him kind of starting to do this and I, I'm... I'm curious if he's seen mine. I'm curious, but his, his the vibe of his are very different. Obviously, it's it's very Rick. But but I'm tr what I'm trying to do with with mine. I'm I'm thank you for saying that you think it's cool because I love it and I think I, I have a community um, on you know social media that like I'm often hear from people that, that is that will say you know when I ha when I have a session we we look online to see what your latest words and music in six seconds is just to see if it inspires us. And to me, that feels like a role that's amazing that I can play in my songwriting community. So I hope I hope we can make more of it. But why? Why didn't you know about it until my manager told you? I don't know. Let me ask you a different question, and I'll get back to that. Okay. Give us some of your greatest hits. Uh, you mean in the in the six seconds? Right. Okay. If you like it, then it's good. If it sounds good to you, then it sounds good. Okay. Uh, how do you come up with these since you're doing them on a regular basis? It's, it's, uh, it's like, it's like writing a song or, or being a writer. I, I'm like, oh, it's been a while since I've, di I've done some, I, I could spend an afternoon and write a whole bunch. So I'll write like 30 or 40 and then there'll always be like three that are good. Okay. So you'll discard 85%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a lot, a lot of them are because it, because it has to be pithy. It has to be a little, it can't be just what you expect to hear. It can't be preachy. It, it's got to be, um, there's got to be a ray of hope in it. You know, it, it can't just be like, never do this, you know, cause that's just a drag. It's gotta, it's gotta be, there's a lot of things that there's a needle to thread in my mind of, of how to make, how to give, first of all, how to give good advice. It's not easy. You, you don't want to bum people out. What's the secret to good advice? Well, I mean, it has to be actionable. It's got to be open-ended. It's got to it's got to leave the person room to solve the problem. You know, it can't be the solution to the problem. It's, it can't be like an algorithm to a Rubik's cube. It has to be it has to be like, you know, a guide for finding algorithms to Rubik's cube. You know, it can't you can't just solve the problem for the person. It's it, it has to be um, it has to leave open-ended the possibility that the advisor is wrong. There's a lot of things that that you know. People try to give advice. It usually sucks. It's usually terrible. Well, I find generally speaking, people don't listen to the advice anyway. They <laughs> say, oh, it's great. And they do what they want. They just wanted you to say that your that their thing was great. I can also spot that. If someone's like, listen to my song and tell me what you think. And I listen and I'm, I talk to them for 10 seconds. I can tell if they really want me to say anything. Usually they don't. They They just want me to say, you are fucking amazing. I love what you've done. I got in a couple of bad experiences because I feel bad for people. I've literally sat there with A&R people saying, you know, listen, I told this guy this person, but I'm never signing his act. Yeah. And I've talked to the act. So, oh, I'm going to make a deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I 
used to be honest. Okay. <laughs> okay. And not only do people not want to hear it, right? They go on vendettas. Right. When they're mad negative. at you. <laughs> Right. I, know. I mean, I've had some really bad experience on a macro yeah. level, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. You know, and therefore, I don't pretty much never respond to anybody on the quality of their music because the way you, you said it exactly nails it. But going back, we talk about Rick. His tweets are basically grand poobah, like he produces record. Let me get you in the headspace mm -hmm. so that you mm -hmm. can be creative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who are giving advice, especially in the music business, which is a dumb business, they're doing it because they want to write a book to make money or to improve their image. Huh. Okay. Anybody who does it out of a genuine care, okay, they don't even see this out. <laughs> so as soon as I saw them, I really had no idea. I mean, it sounds like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but I was really stunned. I just figured it'd be, you know, some crap. The same bullshit, yeah. But- not only was it correct, you could get a vibe for the person who was doing it. Yeah. It was quite definitely you. That's, that's, a, that, it's like a, it's writing. It's a piece of writing. It, it's not just words and it's not just a uh, functional. It's a piece of writing because that helps. Like if it was poorly written, how could the advice have any teeth? It's got to be like beautiful because otherwise people would, would, would understand subconsciously that this sucks. I can't listen to this guy. Well, you, you open up a real can of worms there because most stuff does suck and most, and most people are playing to the audience. Oh my God. Yes, so to do so it true. your way and to show some identity, this is one of the things, you know, in music forget, you know, people say, don't make it too general. People relate most when it's specific, mm. when you talk about a specific example in yeah. your life. Yeah. So there's a whole business of people giving advice. Yeah. And your advice in your six seconds was better than any of the advice that, uh, that I've come across. Now, one thing I've learned is people, as I say, end up doing what they want to do. Right. But if, you know, if this songwriting thing didn't work out for you, you could create a business <laughs> with this advice. You could have a weekend seminar with this advice. Do it Rick style. Give the <laughs> advice and then don't be too involved until the end. Don't be hands-on in the middle, whatever. Right, right. You know, try, try to get the people inspired. I think the fact that you're doing the cards is really good, but it's a little, still a little too inside baseball. I understand. And, I, I know what you mean. And the, but the other thing is there needs to be stories like, there should be a blurb on this in the off-duty section of the Wall Street Journal. It's on, mm, sa on Saturdays. Mm. Because people with money, they're frequently frustrated artists, and they'll right. buy this for their kids. Right. Okay? I love that. You put, it, you put it in a music magazine, the people are too cheap to buy it. Okay? <laughs> Wait, I'm going to write this down. Okay. And, you know, you should also certainly get it. And if you can, with a story and best bets in New York Magazine, mm -hmm. how do you reach a thinking audience? Because since music gets no respect from the other uh, art forms, right. movies and books, et cetera, right, right. certainly books, they think they're highfalutin. When you bring something somewhat intellectual where they have to come to you, that's advantageous. But I don't want to go too much more down that because yeah. that's our path. That's between you and me. Yeah. How does, how does someone end up? being able to write a song with you? Well, people, um, the, the way it works is, uh, my publisher or Jim or the world will, um, put an idea in front of me. Like I, I might see somebody online or I might 
I might think I, I, I'd love to meet that person or whatever. And, or um, my publisher will say, we've got this, you know, young artist that's so good. And would you have coffee with them? Um, or, you know, my manager, Jim will say, there's a, there's a A&R, A&R person who's going crazy about this artist. They really, really want you to listen. And, and I'll listen. So I listen to a bunch of music. Usually if I have coffee with someone, it's already decided because I usually like everybody. So I'll be like, oh, they were, they were great. That was amazing. Like, for sure, I'll write a song with them. But, but there's a lot of effort that goes into just not, like during COVID, you can write a song on Zoom, you know, but it's twice as exhausting as it was in person. You know, you're, you're depleted instead of inflated at the end. And it's, 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 uh, it's got its limits, I would say. So I'm doing like two sessions with people a week, maybe three, but probably two. I like to have two days with a person. I like to sleep on it and come back to the same song. That's harder to do during COVID, but it's been doable. And it's harder for me to do because that means I really only would be writing one song a week, but I'd rather, I'd rather have that second day with a person. And uh, the, the, the main thing I listen for is like, is, you know, raw songwriting, like are the words cool? Is there something unique being said in the words? And, the, and is the melody getting me? It's more like the words and the resonance of the person's voice, just the shape of the sound of their voice. Like, is it, when they go for a note, is it bigger because of their resonance? You know, when they say a word, does it shine a little extra because of their, literally just the tone of their head, you know, the way they sound? And that's kind of what I'm looking for is like that resonance and a person who has something to say. Okay. Is it a slog or you're just building to that moment of inspiration and it writes itself? Half, half and half. Like I, I never find it to be, well, I find it to be a slog if the person is too uncertain. If my collaborator is too unsure, if they're so unsure that they're also secondhand smoke, unsure of my ideas as well. I find that to be a slog. And sometimes a person's insecurities or uncertainties or wish to be great makes it hard for them to recognize a great idea in front of their nose. And, and that is, to me, difficult. If I feel like I'm like, if I'm like channeling something really good right now, and you're like, I don't know, maybe, uh, should we work on something else? I immediately start thinking, okay, this is a slog, because I just sang something really great. And I'm not a total egomaniac, so I, I, I know when I'm like really on, and I know when I'm okay. Okay, Desmond Child, who's written a lot of very successful records yes. in the pre-internet era, yes. he's saying, you know, the economics have changed. If it's not going to be the emphasis track, shall we say, yeah. the single, he doesn't even want to start because, you know, in terms of you got the fourth song on the album, it used to be carried by the CD, now right. there's nothing. Right. So do you make any choices based on that? Well, um, I mean, yes and no. Like, often enough, a song that I work on gets the emphasis. So I'm not discouraged about that. I also don't necessarily at this moment um, want to just, I mean, it sounds like Desmond would be willing to just stop making music if he doesn't, isn't getting any emphasis track on somebody's record. But for me, that's not. Well, he's, you know, like many people, he's evolving Broadway shows. Yeah, it's yeah. not like he's not busy, right? but right. he's not always going to songwriting sessions right, with right. another person. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So, you know, I can sometimes tell when, you know, if an artist and a label uh, want to work with me, oh, this is sort of weird to say, but I feel like 
sometimes a label will think, oh, this artist needs to hang out with Dan because then they'll get their mojo back. And I, I'm fine with that, but I, I, but I don't want that to be my job of getting people's mojo back. I, I want to make, I want to make great songs. Okay. You talked about secret smile coming to you in a dream. Yeah. Are the best song songs like that that come to you in a flash or can it be a song equally good if it had been a slog? Well, it's more like you can, you can duke it out with a song. You can be like in a session with somebody or alone and you can be trying and trying and trying. And that's usually not, if you just, if you're only doing that all the way to the end, it's not going to be great. But sometimes in a, in a, during the slog, you accidentally take a wrong turn or you, you leave the path, you know, and you're suddenly you're in a, wait, wait a minute, something is, is good now. Something just happened that was good. Then if you have the balls to, to cut out the previous three hours of work and just work on the, the one line that is obviously happening, that can be the, the flash of inspiration that comes out of a slog. I'm definitely a believer in like, I, I had a painting and um, printmaking instructor who said, um, you know, go to the studio every day, even if you're not inspired. And I'm like, why? How, why should I go to the studio if I'm not inspired? I'd rather go to the bar. And she goes, uh, yeah, but if you go to the bar and the muse visits your studio, you're not going to be there. So I'd rather have the slog because sometimes in the middle of the slog, like lightning strikes and you're like, oh shit, this is amazing. You know, so. Well, I find usually the best, and this is solo work in my case, the best inspiration usually comes in the shower mm -hmm. or when, you know, I'm completely distracted by watching a movie or a television yeah. show yeah. when my head is so, so out of it. Right. In terms of the work in the office, I find I have to slow down enough where you just kind of drift in. And then all of a sudden something for the muse to me, you know, to reach. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. That makes sense to me. And that's like, that sense of aimlessness is hard. Uh, it's hard to kind of, even the word achieve is the right word. It's hard to achieve that kind of aimlessness. It's hard. It's hard to fake. You cannot you can't get yourself either. there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How'd you end up working with Chris Stapleton? Stapleton. I can't remember who saw him first. There was this clip that, I saw online of Stapleton playing, um, oh, it wasn't Whiskey and You, it was another song of his, playing a song at like a state fair, and he was, it was with the Steel Drivers. Oh, it was, um, it was, uh, if it hadn't been for love. And uh, he was singing this song, and there's people talking, and someone holding their phone, and there's people talking, and there's noise, and he's playing in one of those kind of like, uh, the 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 tractor part of a semi trailer with the side flipped up that is a temporary stage, you know, and uh, he sings this song. It's all this background noise, and he's singing "If It Hadn't Been for Love." And I'm like, this is unbelievable. This guy's amazing. Like I can hear it through the noise. And um, so then, um, my manager Jim and I, uh, every once in a while, he would he would send me like we'd send each other the same clip. Like you having a bad day? You got to hear this, and and we'd send each other the same clip, and uh, eventually there was this. I was asked to write with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. I was like, some we gotta someone has to come along who can like bridge the gap between like me and the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, who's good at lyrics, and Stapleton was like, maybe maybe he'll come. So basically, oh, and I had done an in the round with him where I sang after him, 
at an ASCAP show. It was like four writers. It was like Ingrid Michaelson and Johnny Resnick and Chris Stapleton and me. So every time we went around, I had to sing after one of Chris's crazy, amazing, like soulful, you know, like, what do you call those, like blockbuster, you know, hit songs. So I, and we had a fun time on that show and we, we talked a little bit afterwards. So I called him up. I said, can you come down to New Orleans with me and write with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band? This is before Traveler. And he was like, yeah, but Dan, you know, I, I don't know anything about jazz. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I think it's going to be cool. So we had, a, we and the band, the you know, the press hall band and, and Chris and I had an amazing long weekend, like four days of songwriting and laughing and fun. And then when Chris would come to LA for one thing or another, he'd come by my house and we'd write, we'd write a song, not really for particularly a purpose. And then one of those songs was, uh, uh, when the stars come out and he, and he put it on uh, traveler. And one of the best songs on that album. Thank you. I love okay. That in the 20 odd years you have left, what do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? <laughs> oh man, I'd like to go to Paris again. I want to keep, I want to keep making music. I, I want to um, see, you know, my middle schooler grow up and graduate and have a life. I want to keep meeting amazing, brilliant artists and, See if we can't make something incredible together. And where does fa- a painting fit in? I don't really paint anymore because it takes a lot of like infrastructure. You have to have a house that's the, with an extra room where you can be very messy. And I haven't had that for a while. And I guess maybe I haven't like prioritized it. I always try to do visual things. Like I, you know, um, I'm I did a, I did the design on this book of cards. It's you know it was a fun exercise for me. I do. I make um, drawings in my journals, and I keep that part of myself alive. But it's—it isn't really part of my vision for the future to like retire from music and be a painter. Nothing of the sort. Not like Joni Mitchell. Why Paris? Uh, I just the, the couple times I've been there, I've just enjoyed it so much. I just—I just love that place. I want to go back to speaking of art. I want to go back to the Louvre, and I want to see the Tuileries, and I want to see um, the Orangerie. You know, I want to see those places again well you know it's funny i hadn't been for a long time and i went five years ago yeah and the one thing i noticed was the light the light really is different in paris i mean you know it's like yep. it's hard to fathom yep. until you're there you go okay i can tell why the artwork etc and yep. certainly you know going to see all the museums you know I, i've pretty exhaustively it's pretty astounding yeah yeah it's definitely that's i mean it's not really you know i've had a lot i've had a lot of good fortune so it's not like i it's not like my my list has more success on it and what do you think you moved from minneapolis to la you cool with la or it's yeah like- i love la i love it I because really, i love it i i i have it took me about a year and a half to realize that when i moved here that i didn't need to change who i am i could just stay being me i already had a circle of friends i knew the people that i wanted to play on the records I I didn't have to become some sort of pop version of myself. Um, and once I realized that, like, it was almost like L.A. just opened up to me, like, oh, no, now you can meet some really smart people. Okay, here's here's some neuroscientists for you to talk to. Here's, you know, someone to have lunch and talk about that. Like, I, I just like the, it's like L.A. has so many brilliant people. And there's a level of 
even though it's got a bad rap on this score, there's a level of idealism that I really, really uh, resonate with. Okay. And going back to the muse, yeah. do you create every day? Yeah, pretty much. Like even if I have like a crazy chock-a-block day and there's no room, I I probably play piano for like 40 minutes that day or or guitar, something. Try to think of a riff or think of a, a phrase. And prior to going this COVID era, if you went on vacation, would you take a hiatus or create then too? I kind of have an agreement uh, with my wife that I'm not going to bring a guitar and play guitar all day long on a vacation. That's not fair. So I, I actually do take breaks on vacations. Yeah. Okay, this has been wonderful, Dan. I think we've gotten a lot of insight into your life and your process. Thank you, Bob. And I can and I can tell why you're successful. And thanks so much for doing this. A total pleasure. Really, it was, it was a really nice conversation, and it's good to see you again. Till next time. This is Bob Left Sense. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.